welcome to From the Library with Love, a podcast for anyone whose life has been changed by reading. Susan Macbeth founded Adventures by the Book in 2011 to bring literature to life for readers and book clubs through interesting, unique and adventurous events and travels with authors. In 2018, she founded Novel Network, a service that provides assistance connecting book clubs and authors. Graduating from San Diego State University with a degree in business administration, Susan went on to earn her MA in comparative literature. She is a content creator for Fireside, hosting virtual author interviews, a former board member with the Southern Californian Booksellers Association, and a member of Women Writing of San Diego. In short, Susan is a woman steeped in books. Um, and I've got to say, I met Susan and her team uh, whilst taking part in a really fun event recently where a panel of authors did a short presentation and the viewers got to take part in like an online book bingo. And it really struck me as such a unique way to connect authors and readers. And it was so great as an author to meet with such an engaged and really vibrant reading community. So I think what I wanted to ask you, Susan, I love what I love about what you do is the way you bring fun and creativity to author events. There's nothing static or kind of stayed about it. So I'd love to hear about your uh, multi-sensorial literary events. How does that work, Susan? And welcome as well. Thank you. I'm happy to be here and happy to be chatting with you. You know, it's funny because I've been to a lot of um, book signing events over the years um, before I founded Adventures by the Book. And I was quite taken with the fact that they're all kind of uniform. It's a one size fits all approach is, you know, the publishers send an author to the same bookstores, regardless of what their demographic is, regardless of yeah. who the audience is. I mean, it just didn't make sense to me. And, you, you know, we, we'd see these like Pulitzer Prize winning authors coming in and there's two people in the audience or, you know, or people would come in the room for a free lecture and they wouldn't buy books. And I said, you know, this is really interesting. So uh, you know, I just, I love studying people and I would, initially I would watch the authors and I would see this kind of glazed over look on their eye. Like they've been to 20 cities. They're oh. delivering the same speech, getting oh, the yeah. same responses. They don't even know what city they're in. And I thought, well, this is really interesting because, you know, they're grateful and, and they're glad to be on tour, but it almost seems like they were bored. <laughs> I started watching the, the audience members instead of the author and looking at their reactions. And I said, now this is really interesting because I don't see this engagement that to me, books are a, a vehicle to engage, to communicate, to connect. I mean, why do you think book clubs are so popular? Right. And we're missing the mark here. And all these bookstores are missing the mark here. Um, and, and I'm not saying that, you know, to uh, disparage bookstores or, mm. um, but I'm just saying that a one size fits all approach for me, is not the way to go. And I have, I'm a person who has visions of grandeur for good and bad. Um, and I started envisioning as these authors are talking and they're talking about a book that takes place in France. And I'm thinking, wow, wouldn't it be nice to be talking with them while we're eating French dinner or sipping French wine or even going to France with the author? And so that's kind of what I mean by multisensorial is just bringing the literature to life with with food, with with um, travel experiences, with anything that makes it more exciting. Yeah, I get, I get that. And I think that's seen across the board. We all have to up our game somewhat. And you, you only have to look at all these amazing experiences that are being put on. I went recently to um, an immersive Van Gogh experience 
where you walk through and all the images are project, projected around oh, yes. you. Yeah, we did and that too. Did you do? Yeah, because I think it went yeah. around the world. And um, also to Titanic, which was unbelievable. You know, you, you walk as if you're walking onto the boat and you're going through these recreated cabins. So instead of just reading, and we were talking about a little bit about this before we, we come on, but instead of just sort of reading about history, you get to feel it. And that's when it becomes alive and visceral and something that sticks in your heart, I guess, isn't it? So Absolutely. I really admire what you're, what you're doing as an author. We're very grateful for women like you leading the way in this respect and just thinking, actually, there has to be a better way of connecting readers um, with authors. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm kind of a risk taker at heart. So, you know, I understand from a bookstore's perspective is, you know, it's, it's scary out there to try to do something different. And so most of them just stick with what they've been doing for years and years. Um, but I wanted to do something different and I thought I'm willing to take the risk. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out, but you know, there's only one way to find out. Yeah. And from an author's perspective, you know, when you're sitting there and there's a, a sea of blank faces like staring back at you and you're reading and you're doing the obligatory reading from the book and you're thinking, are they enjoying this? I, It's much better to have interaction, a conversation, get an insight into what people are thinking. And feeling, Absolutely. You know. And so I had a little look through your website and I love, um, it, you've taken your adventurers, as you call them, to such gorgeous locations in Morocco to Tuscany. Oh my God, when I was reading this, I just felt this visceral pang in my stomach. I thought, <laughs> I want to feast under the vines and celebrate book launches and happy hours of chocolate and wine tasting. <laughs> um, and it struck me as such a visceral experience, which is great because that's actually what a good novel should be. We all want to, to feel, taste, touch, hear the texture of, of the story. And I suppose your events give you that. Um, tell me a bit more about those events and how they came to be. Yeah, well, you know, it was it, it really came about when I first met Frances Mays, author of Under the Tuscan Sun, and we were doing a book signing event for her. And I said, you know, Frances, I've I'm living vicariously through your books because I've actually never been to <laughs> Tuscany at the time. I had never been. And she said, "Oh, you should come visit me sometime." And I said, "You know, don't ever say that to a person like me because <laughs> well, I'll I will plane it and, 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 and do it and <laughs> And I said, oh my, and it just kind of popped into my head at the moment. I said, wow, I'd love to do that. Imagine what all her reading fans, wouldn't they love to do that too? And I mentioned that to her and she said, well, you couldn't do that as part of your job now. And I said, no, but maybe someday I could create something like that. And it just was a fleeting kind of thought, but I couldn't let it go after that. I thought, what, you know, to go to Tuscany, be under the Tuscan sun with Frances Mays, you know, meeting the, meeting the people she's written about, experiencing the culture she's written about, um, just getting, tasting the food. Oh my gosh, you know? And so I quit my job shortly after that. And I contacted her. I said, remember when you told me this? And I told her I would take you up on it. <laughs> well, well, we're, coming. we're coming. <laughs> and, she, and this was in March. Uh-huh. And she said, well, I'm going to be there in July. And I thought, oh, my God, that's only a couple months away. How can I? I haven't done this before. How can I do this? But, you know, I'm just one of those people that I say, I'm going to do it. And I'll yeah. find, you know, friends and family. What I, I had this idea. And they said, we want to come on that trip. That sounds amazing. And I said, well, I'm only taking 10 people because this is my first trip. Yeah. If it's a disaster, I don't want more than 10 people hating me. <laughs> and also, and so, it's quite nice, isn't it? 
Yeah, it, it was. And so we, um, and then I thought, well, how am I going to organize this tour? Because I'm not a tour guide. I don't know Tuscany. I've never even been there. And so I started reaching out to some of the other authors I had met over the years. And I happened upon one who um, I said, you know, this is what we're doing. And would you be willing to meet with our group when we're there? Maybe do a wine tasting or a dinner. And he said, well, who's organizing your tour? And I said, I haven't figured that part out yet. And he told me, he said, you know, my day job is I'm a Tuscan tour guide. And I said, okay, that's it. The universe is telling me this, this is meant to be. He organized the whole trip. He introduced us to Tuscan authors. um, uh, And he created all these experiences for us. One of his friend is a, a tour driver and he arranged this amazing tour driver who took us to the primo places that not, you know, some of the, the fan favorites that are touristy, but also behind the scenes things. When you, as you know, as an author, you do a lot of research, you meet interesting and unique people yeah. that yeah. Um, maybe the general public doesn't know about or wouldn't know about. And you can, as an author, connect us to those people and say, hey, you know, this person did this for me. And maybe your group could learn about something here. So that's what we did. So for example, this author, who's the Tuscan tour guide, he lives in Siena. And of course they have the, you know, famed Palio horse races there. He's very intimately involved with that as all, as all our uh, Siena citizens. Um, So he got us behind the scenes tours of all these places that aren't open to the public. It was amazing. Oh, as you're talking, my heart is just singing. I'm just thinking, I really would want to go on. Who wouldn't want to go on a trip like that, exploring yeah. the, the back it's streets? Really, it's really fun. How yeah. amazing. How did it go? It was amazing. It was yeah. like the experience of a lifetime. And the first night we were there, um, and my husband didn't want to go. He's, he, you know, he's not a, a pleasure reader. He reads for work. And he said, you know, I don't want to sit around and read books with all these people in Tuscany. And I said, do you really think that's what we're doing? (laughs) I said, we're going to be going out there and meeting people and experiencing the culture and eating the food. This is going to be amazing. And I said, this is my dream come true. And I want you there. So, you know, he begrudgingly came along. And the first night in our hotel room, I just laid on my bed and cried. And he said, what is wrong? And I said, this is like a dream come true. I've waited my whole life to do something like this. And it's actually happening. It was just tears of joy. And when we got back from the trip, he became my biggest advocate. He said, this is the best experience I've ever had. I'll never miss any of your trips again. And he's been on every trip ever since. How, oh, it just sounds incredible. And it's so, you know, when you think about it, it's such an obvious idea. You can't think why people haven't done it before. Like, who wouldn't want to to go to Tuscany, gelato, and eat pasta, and speak to authors, and just yeah. absorb all that culture and and you know everything connected with it? It sounds incredibly memorable, and and I bet the authors loved it as well because you you're getting to talk to readers. You you're kind of selling your book. Um, yeah. Also, that you're right. There's so much of a backstory to it. You know, almost what you see in the book and the and the pages is like the final story, but it's all the stuff that went into it before, all the the mishaps, the research, the incredible characters you meet along the way. Like quite often when I'm going around the East End and I'm interviewing people and going to the cafes and the markets and finding these little underground spots, I think, God, I wish, I wish there was people here with me and I could share it with them. So I think if you ever come to the East End 
of London. I'll take you on a tour of my East End. The we are coming. We are coming. I don't know when, but we are coming. <laughs> You're all going to eat salt beef bagels, jellied eels. Love it. Love it. <laughs> We're going to make it happen. Sounds good to me. And then one of the things I love that you said, Susan, you say that when readers and their favorite authors share a personal exchange, magic happens. What did you mean by this exactly? You know, it's, it's funny that I would say at almost every single event, there is something memorable that occurs that I didn't expect. When we started doing events, there would be a lot of single women who would come to these events. They're looking for unique experiences, something to do. They may not go off on their own doing them or may not have the opportunity. Or And so they would come by themselves. And right. over time coming to events, they become friends. Oh, and then when we go on trips, they travel together. And I think yeah. that happened because they came to one of our events and oh, now they're yeah. friends and now they have traveling companions and friends. And, you know, I'll give you an example that was just so memorable to me. Um, I can't remember what year it was. I think 2017, um, we did a trip to Paris and Provence with New York Times bestselling author Susan Vreeland, who has sadly since passed away. But, you know, she would write historical fiction based on art. And so um, she had this dream to follow in the journey of her book, which starts in Paris. Right. And the characters go on to Provence in World War II. And it's about the um, painters and how they mined the ochre for um, oil paints. Okay. And so there's, there's caves and mines there and she wanted to go there and she wanted to do a book signing and she wanted to take us all over. And so part of the story takes place in the Rodin Museum. It's a newlywed couple and they go to the museum and you know they're caressing each other and you know just like all newlyweds do. And so Susan Vreeland told me, we have to go to the Rodin Museum, which at the time of our trip was closed sadly but the garden was open okay and so the statue was out there and she says i just have this vision that i want people to pose like the kiss entwined and we're going to take pictures of it and i thought okay um i don't know how this is going to work but she says i want you and your husband to be first and, I thought, and my husband quickly ran away and i had to go find him because she she refused to start unless he was the first another Frenchman a young handsome Frenchman yes yes <laughs> that's why we need you on the trip <laughs> so anyway we started she sat me on his lap and she would pose you know put my hand here and his arm there so it was posed just like the statue um, and then she's like, look deep into each other's eyes and like, you're madly in love. And I think, you know, we've been married 40 years. Right. Yeah, that's not just long enough to so, be the marriage. <laughs> right, right. But, you know, it was a fun experience. Well, so then each couple that was on the trip got their turn and we, she would pose them and we'd take photos. Well, before we knew it, there was a huge long line of tourists no. that had, were watching what we were doing and they wanted their turn doing it. And uh, well, this was unexpected. Oh, and there imitating was, art, imitating life, imitating art. There was a young couple on their honeymoon from Brazil. It was Elizabeth and what was his name? Francisco, I think. And they didn't know what was going on. They didn't know who Susan Vreeland was, obviously, but they wanted to take part in this experience. Let me tell you, when she seated them and posed them and they were looking into each other's eyes, I mean, that was honeymoon love. Oh, I mean, wow. it was just a such a beautiful thing. And afterwards, you know, I tried to explain to him, uh, you know, do you realize 
you're being posed by this, you know, internationally renowned author. Um, yeah. And they were just so thrilled. And, you know, so that's, that's, that's what happens, magic. the, the yeah. magic that happens. I get, right? I get it now. That spontaneity that comes with being with people and just getting swept up in the moment, I suppose, which is yeah. what good fiction should do as well. It should sweep us Absolutely. and transport us. Because so many times people will say to me, one of the, and, I, and I've mulled on this long and hard, like you want readers to feel something, you know, whatever yeah. it be, whether it's sadness, curiosity, joy, anger, despair, but you have to, we have to feel because that's one of our greatest reasons for living, right? And so what you did in that moment, getting people to feel things intensely, is great joy and joy and magic. So I love the way that you're imitating what's happening in the pages of a book. That's sort of serendipity as well. But it's, yeah, yeah that's it's, magic. Oh, how wonderful. It was beautiful. I'd love <laughs> to come to that one. <laughs> so would you say, I mean, one of my questions was the most successful event. Well, that sounds like pretty up there. But what was one of your, yeah, let, let's talk about around what was your most successful event and one that perhaps didn't go quite according to plan. Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on your definition of success. For me, right. um, I could probably come up with something memorable from almost every event we've ever done. I guess I, I can think of a, you know, if you're thinking of terms giant success, there's there's so many examples. But one success that stuck with me is that we were doing an event for Lisa C., who, of course, is a wonderful uh, historical fiction author and she, you know she's Chinese American so she writes about her Chinese ancestry a lot mm -hmm. and we did an event at a library and I said I you know I want to make it multi-sensorial and so can we add an element like a Chinese tea tasting a ceremony and we perform the ceremony and everyone gets a taste of the tea oh. just to bring it to life a little bit and so I honestly I just googled you know to try to find someone that could do that yeah. And I happened upon the most amazing man. He actually is, um, he travels to China every year and does these, these tea buys and he does these ritualistic um, ceremonies and all kinds of things. This is his business. And he ironically lived in San Diego part of the year. I said, wow, this is just meant to be. And so he did the Chinese tea ceremony with Lisa on stage for the event. It was really amazing. But when you talk about the success part of it, for me, uh, what happened after that is months later, Lisa C. called me on the phone and she says, I have a question for you. And I thought, oh, God, what? She says, I want to write you up in my acknowledgments for my new book. And I thought, what? <sighs> and she said, yes, you actually inspired me um, the story for my next book, The Tea Girl of Hummingbird Lane. She wrote about the tea in China because wow. she had been inspired by yeah. that event. Oh, and I thought, oh my God, I've never been acknowledged in an author's book before at the yeah. time. And to me, I mean, you, I, I don't know if it ever gets old to you, probably not, but to see your name in print is so oh, cool. No, listen, anyone is lying if they don't, you know, if I have friends that are authors and they credit me in my book, it gets, you get a little jo jolt of joy, don't you, seeing your name in print? You do. It's like, oh, wow, that's really, it was, it was really lovely of her to acknowledge me. And I just felt so honored that book now has a special place in my heart because I feel like I, I played a little tiny role. You had in a hand in, in creating it. You led her... Because you thought creatively, I hate that phrase outside the box, but you kind of yeah. did think outside the box by bringing together those elements of the tea tasting. And yeah, that, that creative approach, I suppose, is what will trigger other 
you know, because all those are creative people, like as you're telling me about the Rodan Kiss, I'm thinking, oh, that's a great, that's a great book. You know, it sounds like a Netflix movie, but right. <laughs> ideas lead to other places. So when you, where do you get your ideas when you're thinking, I mean, that's such a fabulous thing to, to bring in a tea taster to, so people can taste the tea as they're listening to the story. Where do you get your ideas? Or does this come to you or you, that, that it kind does. of It does. I know it's kind of, I mean, you get that because you have ideas that are triggered by something and right. that nobody else has thought of and you create an entire story around it. I mean, that's, that's what you do. And that's kind of what happens for me as I, I think about a book, I think about this, uh, you know, I think, okay, she's Chinese American. What do I think of when I think of China? I think of tea, I think of, you know, and so it just kind of goes from there and you, I, I call it percolating. I go through my percolate stage where everything's yeah. bubbling up. I yeah. had at some point the idea is brewed, but I yeah. almost always immediately have an idea of something that I think of. I'm always intrigued by the concept of ideas, where where they come from. Obviously, they come from our imagination, but where's the imagination part of our brain? Where does that live? And where do these ideas, like you say, percolate? Or I like to think of it as marinating in your brain, and then they suddenly just sort of come out don't they like like a like always like a flower that pushes up in spring out through the earth and just bursts yeah. into life out of our imagination onto a page I find that whole process quite intriguing really and I think you're just looking at it from a different angle but you're doing the same thing as as authors coming up with book ideas right um, I mean I think we all have that gift of doing something that comes innately to us right I mean when my son was in high school he just got physics how he did, he didn't get it from me, that's for sure. But, you know, I'd ask him, well, how do you, how do you see that to make sense of it? And he says, I don't know, mom, I just see it. I just know it. Yeah. And I think it's kind of the same thing as we just each have a brain that yeah. we see something differently from everybody else. And if you're lucky enough to have a profession that you can utilize that gift, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And and that's why me, I, I feel blessed to be able to do what I do because no one else is going to pay me to, you know, think up imaginary characters. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> right. <laughs> and tracks around the East End going underground and so forth. Um, so one of my other questions was I, um, I, I was sort of got to thinking, and I thought, well, all your years of organising book events, you know, you've been around a lot of authors over time, many of them best-selling. You've had a real roster of stellar authors on your lists that you, you've helped organise events for. What and, you obviously, and so obviously you've read a lot of novels, but to your mind, what ingredients make a, make a novel memorable? I mean, obviously great writing kind of goes without saying, great characters, but what, what are your sort of takeaway messages, I suppose, perhaps to other authors or people wanting to write books and thinking, where do I start? What do you think makes a novel stand out? Well, I think for me, and I think a lot of readers based on my experience, is that you touch us somehow, you emotionally connect with us, right? And um, mm -hmm. it can be any kind of book, but if it makes you think, if it makes you ponder if it makes you feel that's the kind of book I want to read I want to be I want to close out the last page and I say this when I finish a good book I grieve for it yeah. you know I was I was brought into this magical world um, with these people these fictional characters but I felt as if I was there with them that I connected with them I understood what they were going through I grieved for them I celebrated with them and I used to not even be able to start a new book after reading, finishing uh, a good book because I wanted to 
process that loss. And I think for me, that magical connection, and I think, you know, in a world that's very disconnected right now over so many things, you know, politics and all the other stuff that goes on, I think books provide a way to connect us. Mm -hmm. And I want to be involved in the connective rather than the disconnective force in this world. And even if I'm doing so in my own little tiny corner of the world, and I only make a little difference, I want to say when I've left this planet that I did what I could um, to help connect people. That's such a beautiful way of putting it. I, I, I completely agree because I think we are never have been so polarized as a world than we are in right now. I always feel like we've plunged back 80 years to the time of yeah. the rise of fascism and, and the dark forces brewing. I feel like that same anger and disconnection. And and that's why I deliberately sort of quite often will switch off the news because I can't take that bombardment of negativity and bad news and I delve even more into a novel because this is a world I can control I can pick that book up and this is what I do when I'm writing I I, you know to to just reconnect with humanity and be around people that I would like to be around that give me joy and are just wonderful characterful individuals I think that's the you're absolutely right I think that's it in the pages of books you can people you can occupy those worlds without having to go there um so yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And and how you define that, like it, that's the magic, I suppose. You know, how do you create those moments that people connect to with characters you you create, you, you care about? That's yeah. not nuanced, but yeah, <laughs> it starts with that, doesn't yeah. it? And what, and I'm sort of wondering as well, thinking, because I think again, you have this wonderful kind of helicopter view because you're looking out, you know, over authors and readers and so forth. And I was thinking that as an author, I sometimes struggle with like not. Like, I love the research. I love the writing when it's going smoothly. But the social media, they're trying to connect with readers. How much is too much? How much should we be doing? You know you need to do it. But how important is that role of social media to authors, would you say? Oh, boy. That is a question that... That's a thorny issue, this one, isn't it? It's it's tough because personally, and I, I do it because I'm in, a, in business, but I detest doing social media. Do I just... You? I do. I detest it. Um, I do it minimally. I do it terribly um, because it's just not meaningful to me. I know it's important. I know you have to do it. And I know there's people who do it really well, like anything else in life. There's people who do it well. And there's people like me who don't do it well. But for me, it's about authenticity. That's right. Authenticity is the most important thing. And I think you lose a lot of that in social media. I mean, you know, we've, we've talked about that for years as you, you see Facebook profiles and everybody posts all their happies. And I, you know, I've done that too. You post all your happy, but when you're going through really difficult times and stuff, you don't post those things. So people get the sense that your life is this, this fake, you know, Mm. everything's going for you. It's wonderful. It's peachy and it's not authentic. And that's what we do on social media. There's, there's, it's hard to be authentic when you're, you know, posting things to to sell books, to put on your happy face, to yeah. put on a perception. I and agree. I think that's why I don't enjoy it because I don't want to post inauthentic posts. Yeah. But at the same time, you don't want to go, oh, you know, my cat's just been sick on the floor and oh, I'm having a really bad day because then it just comes. Yeah, nobody wants to read brain. that. But that being said, yeah. then they want you to be real. Well, what yeah. is real, you know? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I, with this, I've long sort of wrestled with the subject. So I started trying to, then I thought, well, okay, 
I don't want to just keep flogging my books because that's boring. So then I thought, well, I'll maybe I'll, sh- I'll go out and interview these fascinating people who've lived really incredible lives, you know, the wartime generation at the East End. So I started sharing stories and I began to notice that people mu- way more popular than anything I might tell you about my next book reveal or or the book name is the stories behind the story. That's what people want to read. They want to read about these incredible men and women absolutely their way through so that's sort of how I've made my peace with it and now I enjoy it if I've interviewed someone I can't wait to get out and put it on social media um to the point where now it's actually taking over more and more time but maybe the <laughs> podcast came to be born anyway <laughs> who knows kind of lends to the next question that is it's a very unique relationship between an author and a reader especially if the author has given a voice to a reader's emotions you know maybe they've verbalized something that the reader thinks but just hasn't been able to put into words. And so quite often that's it becomes quite a close relationship. What's that key to authors connecting to readers? Does it go back to what we said earlier, which is, you know, obviously just creating a world that they want to escape into? Are there any other keys that you think or pointers that you can give to potential authors or would-be writers or writers now that how we connect? Yeah, I mean, I readers? think it's that, what such just... an important relationship, isn't it? Yes, it is. And I, I think what we just talked about, the authenticity for me is key, because if I if I meet an author and I see that they're about, you know, I'm just here because I'm selling books. I don't care about, you know, I, I did an author event with a very high profile celebrity one time. Um, and everybody, I mean, tons of people and bringing her gifts and showering her. And she didn't give a, you know what, about them being there. She was doing a signing. And I get that there were tons of people there um and so it you know she wanted to move things along but she wouldn't even so much as look up at them her signing was basically with her head down no. and she had, she had a pusher in a pole or somebody would push the book to her and when they signed it she they'd pull it away she didn't even look up and acknowledge and say hi thanks for coming just those few words you know there was no authenticity there was no passion it's just, let's get these books sold and I can get the hell out of here. This day, I remember that thinking, these people came out, they stood in this long line, they purchased your book, they wanted to meet you. Would it kill you to say hello to them? And she's you know? in that position and it's such a privileged position being at a signing table because yeah. of that. she wouldn't be there without them. So that's why I, I don't get that. But, yeah. I mean, luckily that happens rarely, Yeah. but you know, it, it makes me think about is, is, what what would it take? You know, I, I get that she's a celebrity and she's high profile and all that. If you don't want to meet your fans, if you don't care about what you're doing, don't you bother coming out. Right, you know? right. Don't bother doing what you do because it. I think that relationship between author and reader is something quite quite unique. You know, I I love it. I love it when I get an email from somebody saying, "Oh, this really reminds your book really reminds me of my nan." And I or and something she and I wish I'd asked her more about these things that happened in the war or it's helped me to feel closer to her. One woman said, you know, my grandmother was quite a prickly woman growing up and now I get it. I understand why what she lived through. So I think it's quite symbolic because I get something out of those exchanges. Absolutely. Um, And And it makes you feel good. You get the feedback that what you're doing is is touching people. Right, right. So my next question is a hard one as well, I think, because I books about books are definitely having a zeitgeist moment. Um, there have been so many published that I, I got to thinking they're almost like a genre in their own right. So that's definitely been a, a publishing trend. I'm not sure if we're on, that's on the wane now. But what do you, 
do you get a sense that there might be what potentially might be the next publishing trend? What are what are we looking for? What do we as a society collectively need? Because with books about books, you know, the, the last bookshop in London, the Paris Librarian, people loved them, they devoured them. There was it yes. it gave them something that, that we obviously needed. Do you get a sense of that unfulfilled need anywhere else? I'm clearly trying to tap them, tap your idea for the next book. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question because if if we knew that, right, we'd all be yeah. writing that book. Well, we could, yeah. 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 So I, I think it's really interesting um, what does seem to resonate with people all of a sudden. You know, there was a the thing about writing about dogs for a while. Everybody's writing their dog story. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. And I, I, I don't know how those trends start. I don't know if it's, you know, one person writes about it and then it takes off and everybody says, oh, well, I've got a dog yeah. story, too, you know publishers I don't know how much pressure there is you could probably answer this better how much pressure there is from publisher publishers to you know I need you to write a book about dogs because that's what everyone's writing about and you know do you have a story definitely yeah I definitely think there's such a thing as jumping on the bad you know the bandwagon that, that oh we see this is doing well so oh let's get more books like that and but quite often what happens is then you end up with so many the market is flooded and it's a bit like as one publisher once put it to me it's like throwing spaghetti at the wall eventually one will stick if you just throw yeah. it in the market which is quite a cynical way of doing it I often wonder if there's a more intelligent way of, of doing it by I don't know like employing psychologists because when these trends come in they just sweep through and take us over I'm, I'm thinking about that trend quite a while back now but for 50 shades of grey well no one saw oh, yeah. that coming you know yeah but clearly there was a massive need for, for women to read these salacious, sexually salacious books. Um, yeah. And no one saw it coming. So I guess that's always the way, isn't it? But I'm fascinated by it as a concept, really. Yeah, I am too. And it's interesting because I don't I don't know what kind of insights the publishing industry has. I mean, I know I've heard from authors that, you know, their publishers telling them, you need to write a book about this. You need to write a book about that. And I think, where do they get this information? Because they're they're selling those. Those are hot right now. But, you know, by the time this book is written and published, we're going to be on to the next trend. So why not just go with what your original idea was in the first place? I don't know. It's, it's, it's an interesting it is. industry. It is. <laughs> no, all I was going to say is just, I, I, and it worries me or not worries me, but I always think it's not the best way to go about writing a book when it's, you're being told, Oh, look, this is the next thing. It could be this, you know, readers are really hot for this right now because you're not writing it from a place of authenticity and readers can sniff that out a mile away. Can't they? They're very good Absolutely. at detecting a book that has come about organically because a, re a writer is passionate about it and one that's almost yeah. written to order, I think. Yeah. yeah. I mean, how many times have you heard authors say, oh, you know, YA is the new trend. I'm going to write a YA book now, even though none of their books have ever been YA and they've never expressed an interest in YA, but because it's a trend, now they want to jump in. And I'm not criticizing anyone because everyone needs to make a living and sure, everyone needs sure. to. But, you know, when you when you ask about that, I, I don't it's kind of a complicated question. It is, it is definitely, and not not what I would choose to to kind of go down. I mean, I wrote the little wartime library because I discovered the story of a forgotten library, and I thought, like anything, when you you find something, you think the story is too good not to share. I want to tell everyone about it, so that's how it comes to pass. But inadvertently, I seem to have kind of got it tapped into that trend as well because we're having this thing about books about books. But can you think why that might be? Why people love books about books and you see it in reviews people think oh I'm a sucker for books about books anything with the library the title library and I'm hooked I'm in there I wonder why that is why do you think because I, I mean readers love books so when they read something that other people love books and they feel part of that community too and they identify with it right that's me too yeah um, 
And, and we love seeing ourselves in characters or in stories, right? We, we love to resonate with them. We love to identify with them. Yeah. We have our own stories and feelings that I think so. And, and I think there's a lot about nostalgia, isn't there? Because when you talk about, you know, whenever I put on social media or ask you, what was your favorite childhood library? Wow, that seems to unlock some outpouring of love for, for libraries in your youth, I guess. Because it's a place that often we can never go again, but we do have such cherished and warm memories about those places. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely have fond memories of my childhood library, Aurora, Colorado. And, you know, <laughs> we didn't. We didn't have much money. We couldn't buy books. Um, and I loved to read. I was an obsessive reader as a child. And every Saturday we were allowed to ride, get, get on our little bikes. This was the day when, you know, you know, when you're six or seven and you're allowed to, you know, ride your bike a mile and go to the library by yourself. And I had my little pink bike with a white basket on it. And I was allowed to check out as many books as my little basket would carry. And so every Saturday I'd load them up. And I'd read the books all week. And then I couldn't wait for the next Saturday. Oh, yeah. It was a magical place. I still remember it to this day, like 60 years later. <laughs> same, same. I still remember. I still remember the feel of the carpet under my feet. And I remember, you know, my childhood library was not by any means an arts and crafts architectural beauty. It was a very sort of concrete civic center box. But there was, there was pure joy in that when I walked through the door. And I can still remember the smell. And I can remember these spider plants always used to sit behind the the desk <laughs> but it was quiet that was what I really loved it was a sense of peace and quiet and I would just go off and I'd sit on a little green plastic chair and I was so mad about horses like I loved horses but we could never afford one so I think it was like living vicariously I used to get Black Beauty and I'd sit in the chair and I'd read it or The Secret Garden was another favorite or I remember I was always obsessed with like, and I'm so glad now I didn't go to boarding school, but growing up, I really wanted to go to boarding school. So I used to get Mallory Towers out <laughs> and that was it. You could just open this world, this door into another world, but it's yeah. Childhood libraries. Wow. What so did you read some of the books you read as childhood? Can you yes. see where that ha influenced you, what you're writing now? Oh my God. Totally. I was always intrigued by the notion of finding doors so that's why I used to love, like, Forgotten Doors. So that's why I used to love The Secret Garden. Because I thought, wow. wow, amazing to find a door that leads into this garden. Or The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you know, pushing the back of the wardrobe and stepping out into Narnia. At that, as a kid, I was completely obsessed with that. Like, I used to go around, like, testing doors <laughs> in the house just in case. Just in case. Like, <laughs> it's never right, because now I think about it, and I think, oh, I wrote about an underground library, a secret door that goes into a library. So maybe it's just stayed with me all my life. And that came from going to libraries. So, yeah, I guess what we read as children shapes as, as we get older, perhaps. <laughs> I don't check doors anymore, by the way. <laughs> um, and that kind of leads on to the question of, I know that you were director of marketing and events for a bookshop in um, way back. And I, and, and I suppose it got me thinking booksellers are like librarians in the sense that all life comes through the door of a, of a bookshop. And, you know, and a library and a bookstore is a microcosm of life. So by taking a little peek behind the stacks or the doors of a bookshop, we're getting a glimpse of, a, of humanity as a whole. Is that something you agree with or that you saw and witnessed when you worked at a bookstore? Um, yeah, I, I guess so. I mean, that's a really good question. I, I haven't really thought much about that. I just feel like anybody that connects people with books, whether it's a library or a bookstore or, you know, your book club, your grandmother, I think, I don't know. I'm kind of speechless on this one. I don't oh, know. No, I mean, 
I, I guess I was just wondering, like, is it the same as obviously, I, maybe it's not quite the same because a library, you know, because it's free and anyone can go in, you they are very much frontline workers in the sense that everybody comes to the door. Whereas, whereas for a bookshop, it's different because you're coming in to purchase a book. It's a different transaction. It's a different service. But I know that from conversations with librarians, you know, they never know what each day is going to bring because, you know, from the mentally ill to the disenfranchised, the lonely, the vulnerable, people yeah. have slipped between the cracks in society. Everybody comes in and so you have to have this massive kaleidoscope of, of skills, I suppose, to deal with it. And I wondered if you've got the same sense of that in a bookstore, but maybe it's a different it's a different service, therefore a different kind of clientele, perhaps. Yeah, and I think too, when I was at the bookstore, I was more, you know, I was in the back room. I wasn't really on the floor. I was, you know, okay. together, so I didn't amazing. have a lot of experience with that. Yeah. Um, Oh, the back room of the bookstore. That sounds like a, a book in its own right, doesn't it? Oh, let me tell you, I could write a book about that experience. <laughs> I think you should. <laughs> and then we can have a sensory experience. Eventually. Oh, yes, that would be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to read that book, I tell you. Oh, I'd love to write it, let me tell you. Would you? Well, that's the question. Would you? Are you tempted to write a book? Yeah, I mean, I'm actually writing a book, but I, oh, wow. I use that term writing loosely because I've been writing it for probably 15 years. But, you know, my mother grew up in uh, World War II Germany. She, her father was in the German Wehrmacht. And, um, oh, really? You know, they, oh, yeah. And so she never talked about her life because, you know, they were considered the enemy, right? Even though right, she was right. a little, she was a child. She had no clue what was going on. But she kept a lot of her life secret. And I didn't know much about her. And she would never talk about it. And every once in a while, something would leak. And... I'd start asking her questions and she'd get really angry at me. Why are you asking me all these questions? And so I learned to stop asking questions that when she was in that moment, I would just listen to her. Um, and so I would, and then I would go in my room and jot down notes because I love to journal and I jot down notes about it. But I realized when she passed away that I hardly know anything about her, her oh. childhood, just these bits and pieces. And so I traveled back to Germany. I, I took her to Germany right before she passed away so she could say goodbye to her family. And she wanted to go kind of on a memory tour. So she had her, her brother uh, take us around. And I got to see some of the sites of her childhood and learned so much. But I thought, oh my God, I don't know any of these stories. Now I know places and I took pictures and I jotted notes but I don't have anything. And then right before she died, she got very upset and she said, I'm afraid I'm going to be forgotten. And so I made a promise to her that I would never forget her and that I would write a book about her to commemorate her life, even if it's something I just self-publish and keep it for my own family. Yeah. Um, and so I've been writing that book for years oh and uh, someday I hope to finish it. But, you know, I'm, I'm so busy with my work now that I just don't take the time. And, so and I feel sort of guilty because I know I know writers like you, they, they're juggling so many things and they just dedicate their time to writing. And I haven't I haven't. But this, is that but this is personal to you, which very is, you know, which makes it so much harder. So yeah. much harder. I mean, as you're telling me that about her saying, "I'm afraid I'm going to forget," I actually felt the hairs on the back of my neck go up when you said that, 
because this yeah, it's is interesting that you said that because you know people have asked me what has taken you so long and i i realize there is a psychological component to that because i feel like i don't want to let her down and i don't know what her real story is so i'm going to be making it up and am i going to be making it up in a way that she would be disappointed in that wouldn't remember her as she wanted to be remembered um so I think there is a psychological comp component of why I'm not finishing it. Oh, massive, um, massive. There's a huge duty of care that some legacy she's given you to write research and write her story. And maybe there's a part of you, well, I don't know, but I guess I would be fearful of what I might turn up and, and about what I might uncover about my mother. And yeah, you know, yeah. and the other thing up. too is that, you know, I mean, she, they weren't Jewish. They were... You know, they were Germans during that time. And, you know, that's not fondly, those people are not fondly looked upon in history. And it's hard to write about someone you love. And, you know, their family were not Nazis or anything, but they were part of that. But, you know, the, but, but there were so many, well, the millions and millions of innocent Germans caught up in a war that they didn't want in a dictatorship. You know, we tend to forget that. But there were plenty of opponents, people on the ground who were just normal people but who got swept up who did he wanted no part of it I'm always fascinated by that by Me the too. other side you know I, I gave a talk once at a library in the East End about the Blitz and at the end of it a very elderly lady at the back of the audience says yes London was badly bombed she said but I was there the night that Dresden was bombed I'm from Germany let me tell you what the Allies did to Germany and there was this silence fell over the library. And I, I did go and interview her. I got her number and I went back and interviewed her. And my God, you know, the other side, you know, because history paints in broad brushstrokes, the good, the bad, the heroes, the villains. And you forget that there are, you know, good people on the bad side and, and on the winning side. And, you know, on both sides, there are winners and losers. So I, I'm fascinated. Well, I wish you so much luck with that. And what a Thank journey. You. What a journey. And so interesting as well, I find this, the the inheritance of memories and also how we process things. I, I, I got a sense of this going to the Channel Islands recently, researching for my book on the occupation there. Oh. And I heard this very interesting phrase that the need to share overcomes the desire to forget. And I think that often comes in the very end years of people's lives where they suddenly think, God, if I don't, this story will die with me. Yeah. So maybe that is what happened with your with your mother. I think so too. I think so too. And now I'm feeling the pressure because you know oh. I'm I'm turning sixty five this year, and I think, oh gosh, you know I'm I'm not ready to go yet. But <laughs> but you know you do start thinking about your own mortality and you you know, what are the things you've accomplished? What are the things you haven't accomplished? And that one keeps mm. sitting on my shoulder, telling me yeah. you need to get going on that. That story will come out of you when the time is right. It might be a little so. gush, but it will come. <laughs> wow, I cannot wait to it. Have you got any title ideas in your head or is it that just too early? Well, yeah, I mean, but I was just going to call it Maya, which is her, how she was known in Germany. So we, we knew her as Maria in America, but yeah. And I've got, you know, I've got pieces written and I've got, you know, I, I've probably got a hundred pages written, but uh, yeah. Oh, I wish you so much luck with that. We'll, we'll um, thank you. We'll have to come back to that. I'm fascinated by it. Well, I mean, it's authors like you that inspire me. I hear, I, and I hear when you talk about your ideas and then you actually write it and it's published and you're out there. And I think, wow, you know, that's amazing that but I think people that have I, the discipline and can do it. But it's a very different thing when you're writing, you know, the people that I'm writing about, I do feel a close emotional connection to, but they're not my family. 
And I think that yeah. does make a world of difference. You know, there is a sort of um, a kind of duty of care almost, isn't there? There, but wow, amazing! I'm so fascinated. You just you told me that. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I could ask as well. I I noticed that your thesis that you was titled, and I'm going to struggle with this word because I can't seem to get my tongue around it. But I think it's the historic. I'm going to start again. Historicity. Historicity. My God, I'm a historical thinker. <laughs> it is a difficult word. The historicity <laughs> of fiction in Holocaust literature. Tell me what this means exactly. What, what can you yeah, well, about? I mean, it, it, it's interesting because, you know, there's there's so many elements that inspire that, including my mom's history, right, is that she wouldn't talk about it. And history is written from the perspective of winners, so you hear about, you know, the Allies victory over the evil um, Hitler, which is is true. You know, I'm not saying that that's not false, but you don't hear the other side of it. You don't hear, you know, these little girls who are growing up that their cities are being bombed, they're starving, they're being shipped away from their families for safety. They don't know what's going on. And how do you know the truth of what was really going on? I was reading uh, some German literature because my my master's was in comparative literature with an emphasis in German literature. And I started thinking, well, what books out there are really relaying the truth Wow. And the ones I got the most out of happened to be fiction. And I said, why am I learning more from works of fiction than I am from works of nonfiction? And I realized that for me, there is a sense of historicity in fiction, right? Is because, yeah. you know, what, what's removed from fiction is there there's a safety net right you're not writing about a real character so you're mm. you're you don't have to hold back what you're saying what you're feeling what you're experiencing because they're fictional characters right right and so you can be more truthful you can be more um emotional you can you can express things that may not fly in a nonfiction book. And so I was very intrigued by that. Yeah. And I realized that the books I was reading, the fiction books I was reading, I was learning just as much, if not more from, than works in nonfiction. Yeah. I said, you know, I think there's something to this. I think, yeah, I agree. It's so interesting to me. And I've often looked at big nonfiction books around. I see them in the, the windows of Waterstones and what's selling. And I'm I quite long and hard on this. And I quite often think it's because a lot of history, nonfiction books are written by, in inverted commas, important, you know, historians, men. And so therefore they're looking at history through the, through the often white upper middle class gaze. And so quite often what you'll get is establishment histories, histories of kings and queens and military commanders and men that made laws and started wars. And so lost in that is the vast experience of most people you know, AKA working class women, children, you know, women who might not have instigated history, but were forced to react to it. And so I often think that when history when viewed through their eyes takes the true temperature of the times, it's history up close and personal. So when you read historical fiction through the eyes of these women, you're getting a much more nuanced and true experience, a human lived experience of those times than you are by the official that, you know, I, it's such an interesting subject to me. I could go on forever and I won't. <laughs> but it's <fascinating. laughs> and another me too. It's very fascinating. I, yeah. Another thing I realized in relation to that is that often it's history for people that were in a uniform, you know, whereas most, a lot of women, especially during the Second World War, housewives and factory workers and just ordinary women weren't in a uniform and they didn't leave a paper trail. And so therefore they're lost, their voices are lost to history. They're hidden in the shadows. Whereas the WVS, the WI, 
the women in you know the services often get big weighty books dedicated to them um, yeah and thereby we're missing a whole swathe of really complicated powerful histories that go under the radar which you can explore in, in fiction like you say absolutely right well I have three final um <laughs> payoff questions for you Susan so what's your favorite childhood book my favorite childhood book oh boy well, I was obsessed with I was obsessed with all the Nancy Drew books. I just and it's kind of funny because when you think about your childhood and what you're interested in, and then you fast forward to where you are now, how that played a connective role. And I am just I'm kind of a detective mind at spirit. I love finding out how things work right. and looking looking for clues, um, solving problems, solving mysteries. To me, that's fascinating. If I, you know, if I had all the time in the world, I think I'd be a genealogical researcher because I love, really? I love looking for clue, clues oh, that wow. connect things and solve yeah. a mystery. I also was obsessed by I don't know why, but I loved reading books about uh, our first ladies, and I think there was an element of the fact that we hear about all the men, the presidents. Yeah. But what were the women doing? And I was fascinated by that and. Just, you know, just what we were talking about before, right? Yeah, uh, amazing. I love Nancy Drew as well. Who, who doesn't? And I also, but I think this next question is covered because I asked about uh, the next question I'm asking everybody is your favorite library. Would that be your childhood library or is there another one that you? Yeah, I, I think so. Just because it holds such fond memories in my heart that it really made the biggest lasting impression on me. And I'm, I'm very touched by libraries. We have some amazing libraries in Southern California and I work with many of them. Um, I'm huge fans of theirs. I I, I admire what they offer, uh, the services and yeah. what they can accomplish on a shoestring budget. Uh, you yeah. know, they're always being threatened by budgets and closings and limited services. And yet they still pull off being a, a hub for the community. Yeah. And I don't think, you know, and I was thinking about this, well, I don't think a library has to be grand or substantial to make a difference. Quite often those tiny little libraries and have yeah. the biggest effects. Like I, I interviewed one woman who told me that her library was in a laundrette, or um, I don't know what is what's the equivalent in America, but it's where you take your washing to be done, and they just had a battered shelf of paperbacks. And while her mum was waiting for the the sheets to be washed, she would sit and read, and you could borrow, and and then oh, wow. it was all free. So I kind of love the little laundry libraries. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> and your last question is: If you were sent off to a desert island with only one book what would it be? Oh, that is a good question. Um, <laughs> I think I have, a, I have a handful of books on my nightstand that are just like my go-tos. And one of them is Anne Morrow Lindbergh's Gifts from the Sea. And I think I might take that with me just because it's kind of philosophical in nature, but it really is about taking the tiny moments in life and noticing these gifts from the sea, these little clamshells or this nautilus or yeah. these grains of sand or just, and I think if you were stranded on a desert island, you would want to uh, find things that felt like they were of meaning to you. And um, I think you could spend an inestimable amount of time Mm -hmm. uh, focusing on on things that nature offers and they are gifts from the sea and I think that's what our life is our life is a, a gift um, that we spend unwrapping yeah that's so interesting because it will teach you to slow down I suppose and notice the minutiae which is you know important in life yeah what about you oh god that, 
get turning the tables a bit. I really don't know. I'm not. I think something similar to that. Like I really love a recent book by Raina um, Wynn about who called the Salt Path about a woman again who just reconnects with nature and she goes and it's, it's essentially a book about a long walk down by the beach. But the beauty that she finds in tiny fragments of nature is really startling and really beautiful as well. And it makes you realise that when you strip everything else away, all we actually have is this earth and the planet and the sea and the fields and the mountains. And yeah. it's quite humbling. And I think if you're in a situation like that, yeah, it would be quite good to connect with that. Yeah, That's a great answer, though. I'm going to check that book out. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, Susan thank you so much for your time I've absolutely loved chatting to you thank you for having me it was a real oh, pleasure chatting with you oh, and so we'll have to do it in person sometime maybe oh for sure you listen you're coming we to, come England. to England I'm going to look you up <laughs> for sure and I did think as you were talking about your sensorial kind of interactive experiences that maybe um, there's a wonderful um, underground museum that I went to in London when I was researching the little wartime library and it's where people actually it's an underground shelter and they've kept it exactly as is with the with the, the bunk beds and the cafes and it's 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 very deep below the central line in south london and i suddenly thought wow what a great experience to do a book reading down there so maybe that's yes. what we could do okay we'll put it on <laughs> first the calendar book, first book reading 78 feet below ground <laughs> thank you so much susan you take care now thank you you too bye-bye bye-bye I really hope that you enjoyed that conversation. If you have any questions or comments about any of the topics raised in our conversation, or perhaps you have a story you'd like to share, then do get in touch via my website, Facebook or Instagram, details of which are all listed on the podcast. Thanks for listening.